This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we like to talk about just about everything. And one of them is food. And before we get to our, well, our food guy's rap piece for the day, Sean, who's a part of our team, we were just goofing off talking about our favorite scenes about food and movies and TV. And, well, one of them, well, was Pulp Fiction. Sam Jackson and John Travolta talking about, of all things important, hamburgers. And you know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? What do they call it? They call it uh, a royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. What do they call a Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. <laughs> that Big Mac. Classic. That's right, Jesse. Seinfeld, our favorite scene there was the, uh, well, the infamous double dip scene with George at a party. And let's take a listen. What are you doing? What? Did, did you just double dip that chip? Excuse me? You double dipped the chip. Double dipped? What, what, what are you talking about? You dipped the chip. You took a bite. And you dipped again. <laughs> so? That's like putting your whole mouth right in the dip. Look, from now on, when you take a chip, just take one dip and end it. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Timmy. <laughs> but I don't dip that way. Oh, you don't, huh? No. You dip the way you want to dip. I'll dip the way I want to dip. Give me the chip. Hey, hey, hey. I agree with the dip Nazi, though. I mean, come on, really. <laughs> he's right. I love the way that guy sold it, too. Yeah. He was so serious. His fingers when he's like, we need pounds. <laughs> oh, and of course, our favorite, it was just not even a consideration. It's, of course, from Goodfellas, and it's the prison eating scene. Goodfellas. Yeah, fellows? Sorry, Goodfellas. I'm from Jersey. <laughs> it's okay off the air, but on the air you gotta say it correctly. <laughs> Goodfellas. And Ray Liotta doing the voiceover work. Here we go. In prison, dinner was always a big thing. We had a pasta course, and then we had a meat or a fish. Paulie did the prep work. He was doing a year for contempt, and he had this wonderful system for doing the garlic. He used a razor, and he used to slice it so thin that it used to liquefy in the pan with just a little oil. It's a very good system. Vinny was in charge of the tomato sauce. Ah, got the smell. Got treats. The kinds of meat and meatballs. You've got the veal, beef, and pork. Ah, good, but you got to have the pork. Pork, that's the flavor. I felt he used too many onions, but it was still a very good sauce. Vinny, don't put too many onions in the sauce. I didn't put too much onions in Oh? Three small onions, that's all I did. Three onions? How many cans of tomatoes you put in there? I put two cans, two, two big cans. cans. You don't need three onions. Johnny Deal did the meat. We didn't have a broiler, so Johnny did everything in pans. I used to smell up the joint something awful, and the hacks used to die, but he still cooked a great steak. Hey, how do you like yours? Red. Medium red. Medium red. Hmm. Aristocrat. Yeah, it doesn't get better. You have to that. watch that again. I know. Yeah, it's on like every week with yeah. Godfather. I think it's like eight hours a week on AMC. I'll tell you, I bumped into the guy who said not 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 so much onions. Paul Paul Servino. Yep. 
I was at a, a high school volleyball game in Malibu. His granddaughter was playing, and I barely recognized him because there's a story. He says, when I was preparing for this role, I had to get in a state of mind. He says, one day I was walking by a mirror, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and I flinched because it was some other guy. It was some dark, evil guy. Right. And so when I saw him at the game, it was true. It was that softness on his face. There was not that edge that yeah, was, was in the gone. movie. It was yeah. crazy. That's great acting. Yeah. And now it's time for our food critic, food resident foodie. Sean with his report. Hello, I am A.A.R. Santo with Our American Stories Foodie News. Today we bring you James Wright. And let's just say James Wright has two things in common. Patty LaBelle and sweet potato pie. Greetings! So, I went to the store after I seen somebody post that Patty LaBelle pie. I love Patty LaBelle. I lo- Shout out to Patty LaBelle, honey. I went and bought the Patty LaBelle pie. Sweet potato patty LaBelle. This is the patty edition, honey. This is the on my own. Why did it end this way? Now, as you can see, James really, really likes patty LaBelle. And, well, it gets interesting from here. As we partake on James's pie review, you'll see <laughs> he takes it to a different level. So, Katrina, I bought you a pie. You get this video. See this video. You said buy you a pie. I bought you a pie. I bought five pies. I'm going to do a raffle. Anybody want to win a pie? So I'm about to slice this pie. It, I think that this pie, because Patty LaBelle could cook. Now, the first obstacle of James's review is he had a bit of a problem trying to open the pie box. Buying this pie, it's hard to get in this. Patty, what you see on this twin? Gorilla glue? Oh, there we go. Come on, Patty. You better come out. Come on, Patty. Hmm, on my own. Why did it end this way? As you can see, not only does James love Patty LaBelle, he actually seems pretty good. Now we move on to the tasting part of his review. You turn into Patty after eating this. Mmm, Patty, how is it that two people who laugh together and love together? James Wright loves the pie so much he actually turns into Patty LaBelle and starts to sing some of her songs. Sometimes, ooh, ha ha! Patty! When you've been blessed, feels like heaven. Here's what makes this whole story come together. James Wright YouTube video has become so popular that it has over 3 million viewers. And not only that, Patty LaBelle's sweet potato pie has been sold out all over the country due to this video. Go to Walmart and buy the Patty LaBelle pie. I never knew until then, but I know now. Mm. Always remember, a viral video can make an impact on how a product is sold. And from what I understand, even Walmart can't keep up with the demand. For Patty LaBelle's Sweet Potato Pie, I'm A.A.R. Shanto with our American Stories Foodie News. Ah, that was good fun. <laughs> good fun. And again, right now I'm sitting with one of Greg Hengler's apples. He's actually, he picks these great apples and I go into the... The the, uh, the group refrigerator. I'm one of those guys who actually steals the other guy's foods. One of the most hated guys in any organization. That's me. I'm the swiper. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We'll be back with more after this. Amazing grace 
how sweet a sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to the great Alan Jackson. Singing the most well-known song in the world. And each day this month, we're going to celebrate Infant Loss Month. Ronald Reagan commemorated it in the 1980s. And it touches me dearly because a very good friend of mine and my wife, well, she suffered two miscarriages, not one, two. Two successive ones. And unlike when folks lose a baby to a disease or to a car crash, the women just don't get the same, let us just say, love when this happens. I mean, people just say they, they grieve for the woman, but then they, they're hoping she just gets past it because they don't know what she knows, which is that was a baby. And she had a name for that baby. She had plans. She'd probably painted a room. And I'll never forget seeing Pam's face, the anguish when she lost the first. And then the couple got back in the saddle seven or eight months later. They they went to try and have that next baby. And she was just jubilant. She announced pregnancy to everybody. And then it happened again. And we were so worried for her. And I had just never seen that kind of anguish. So October is infant loss month, and that's miscarriages, that's stillborn births, sudden infant death syndrome. And for anybody who's wondering what is inside the life of that woman, well, to those women who've lost babies this way, though those are babies. And just, if you know anybody who's just gone through it, Just think about that. So what we're doing each day is compiling a a list of some women who've talked about that experience and want to share it with others. And also men, because it's not just the women who suffer the loss. Her husband was inconsolable. So I wanted to talk to you about Paul Smythe, and what happened in his life as he experienced a tragic stillborn birth. Jonathan Paul was born at 4.03 a.m. on February 3, 2015, in his sack. The doctor said it was an extremely rare occurrence. You can see his little hands and his little feet in the sack, and it was one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen. Jonathan Paul was ten and a half inches long and weighed 12 ounces. He was perfect in every way. He had my exact feet and my wife Amanda's hands. 
He looked just like me, just a lot smaller. We had 32 hours with him in the room with us, 32 hours of hanging out with him, 32 hours of reading I'll Love You Forever, 32 hours of conversations, 32 hours of memories, 32 hours of holding him, 32 hours to say goodbye. Saying goodbye was the hardest thing that I have ever had to do. Handing him over to the funeral director just about killed me. Why, at the age of 28, do we need to make plans for our son's funeral? No parents should have to plan their child's funeral. And again, that was Paul Smythe. I think I want to just play one more. Jesse, we're going to go to Caroline's. Another story about a stillborn birth. When the doctor came in, I couldn't even look at the ultrasound. Not only were there too many tears in my eyes, but I think I knew what he was going to say, and I was too scared to see it for myself. He turned to me and said, I'm so sorry, Caroline, but the baby has passed. I'll never forget those words, and I'll never forget how my husband wrapped me in his arms, and I cried harder than I ever have before. I was only nine days from my due date. We decided to induce labor right away to speed things along, and later that night at 11.45 p.m. on June 28, 2010, I gave birth to our firstborn child. He was 7 pounds even, 20 inches long, and looked just like his daddy. He had dark brown wavy hair and the cutest little nose. We named him Kale. It wasn't until he was born that we learned that the umbilical cord, which was around his neck, had gotten too tight or compressed that it cut off the blood flow. My guess is it happened after contractions began once I went into early labor. We had some time with Kale, and we both held him, kissed him, and told him we loved him. But I wish I held him longer. I don't feel like I did him justice in the short time I held him. I wish I memorized every part of his body, unwrapped his blanket, and just examined his fingers and toes and the perfection that he was. I know forever wouldn't have been long enough, though. He was a beautiful baby, and I wish I could have shared him with the world. We'll love and miss Kale the rest of our lives, but we're thankful for the time that we did have with him. We're thankful that he made us parents, and thankful that we are better able to understand and appreciate love, friendship, family, and all the things that are truly important in life. We know now the pain that is associated with losing a child, stillbirth in particular, and can better reach out to those who will unfortunately go through this same journey. Kale's life, as short as it was, has made us better people. If you're going through this, just know that you're not alone. While stillbirth is rare, it's not nearly as uncommon as people think. Don't be afraid to reach out to others and just know that any emotion you're feeling, be it anger, sadness, fear, or even joy, are totally normal and there's no need to rush through any of your grief. Also know that it comes in stages and it'll sneak up on you. But you're stronger than you think, even when you don't feel like it. If you know someone who is going through this, my biggest advice is to not be afraid to reach out. Don't let the fear of saying the wrong thing prevent you from saying anything. There's nothing wrong with saying, I'm sorry, or I'm thinking of you. It's words of encouragement and love that will help bring comfort to someone during their darkest days. Don't pretend that nothing happened, and don't avoid talking about it. Our babies may have been stillborn, but they were still born. You know, it was amazing about that experience was watching people console Pam and some were just so dismissive and it made it so much harder and you could almost tell an entire human being's outlook on life itself 
by how they actually handled my good friend Pam's grief. Some some of my friends, it just didn't even affect them. They just thought, well, whatever. It's just, uh, you know, the baby was never born. I don't know. What's the matter with her? Wasn't a life. Didn't happen. And others were just as, as, as anguished. And so again, whatever your thoughts on are on when life begins. For these women, for these women, there is no confusion. None. And for these men, Mark Zuckerberg just spoke out publicly about he and his wife had two miscarriages over the last few years, and they finally are pregnant again, and it looks healthy. But he just spoke out very publicly and courageously about this, too. Yeah, it takes a lot of guts. Thanks for that, Alex. And, uh, and prayers for, for the Zuckerbergs or anybody who's, who's gone through this, and the more we can talk about it, uh, the better. It's something that you're not hearing probably on a lot of airwaves. And you know, we try to have a lot of fun here, but we want to make sure that we tell the stories that really matter to folks and the stories you're not hearing anywhere else here on Our American Stories. If you have a loved one who's gone through this, if you've gone through this, Write us, share it with us, call us. We'll be doing this every night for the remainder of the month. This is Lee Habib. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about marriage with a person who has been doing amazing work in the marriage field. We'll be back in just a few. And this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Chris Stapleton. We love him. Check out our interview with David Cobb, the producer who's responsible for Jason Isbell's music, Chris Stapleton's, and many more. Uh, Sort of authentic Americana coming back. And now we're happy to shift to marriage on the mind. And as always, we weekly deal with marriage. And our marriage coach, Deb Wolniak, who is the executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And today, Deb brings us a conversation she had in, of all places, her car, while she was driving a friend who is a clinical psychologist. Here's Deb. All right, we're here with Heather Johnson. 
Heather. Stop. What? Do it over again. Stop. Heather McLaren Johnson. Oh, excuse me. We're here with Heather McLaren Johnson. (laughs) Don't worry, this part won't be in there. (laughs) Some people don't realize that the husband you're married to now is your second husband. Is that right? Mm -hmm, That is true. I actually got married for the first time on the day I graduated from college. So I was 21 and uh, met the young man that became my first husband when I was 19. And uh, he was the love of my life. And we married in 1981. And unbeknownst to me, he had a um, pretty severe mental illness in the making. And in our first year of marriage, was hospitalized for his first time in a locked psych ward and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And we were married and in therapy, both individually and as a couple, trying to cope with his illness for seven years. And then in the midst of a manic episode, um, two weeks before Christmas one day, he decided he did not want to be married anymore because he wanted to pursue other relationships. And uh, he left did not see this coming at all and in fact um, you know what I'm telling you about the mental illness is all pretty much in retrospect I didn't even know what the diagnosis was at the time I just knew that he had horrible mood swings your heart was given to him and this had had to be so hard to go through it was just horrible I mean I we tried everything that we were guided to do with therapy and nothing seemed to stabilize him and now in retrospect he was he was never properly medicated um and i'm saying that now as a professional so it's very sad because i kind of wonder had i known how to seek proper treatment at the time and proper um medication i wonder if the marriage could have been saved what would you say now as a professional to those listening to this on how to maybe go ahead and protect your marriage further in the midst of mental illness? Yeah. Well, of course, that's going to depend on what the mental illness is, but I'll speak spe- you know, specifically to um, the affective order- disorders like um, bipolar disorder and anxiety disorders and depression first of all, to seek medical treatment, um, to find out if there's some kind of an underlying cause of those disorders um, that could be treated medically. And if not, there are all kinds of good medications on the market now that can help um, stabilize these moods and help you have a very functional life and a functional marriage, happy marriage. Um, So that's very key. And then also to get the professional support of therapists to learn how to live with mental illnesses. And it's equally as important, I think, for the spouse of um, a person with a mental illness to get those supports. So not only can they learn about the mental illness um, to support their spouse, but to also get the support for themselves. Because it's very difficult to deal with um, a person who... um, has those kind of of issues it's a stress on the marriage 
What do you suggest for children who might be involved in the family who are now seeing maybe a parent or both parents maybe struggling through some of these things? They're trying to find a sense of normal. How do you encourage children that are going through this? That's a really good question. I think one of the most um, helpful things for kids is for the parents to uh, talk about it, to keep communication open about the mental illness and to not promote the stigma of mental illness by keeping it under wraps. Um, You know, for example, um, I have a diagnosis of a generalized anxiety disorder and I have had a major depressive episode in my life and my kids know that um, I have this predisposition and, and these challenges and so when I am in one of those um, challenging times I'm very straightforward with my kids so that they know first of all it's not their fault that I'm having those things those issues and also that it's not their responsibility to take care of me you know when you grow up with parents that have um, some emotional challenges oftentimes the kids will try to take responsibility for healing their parents, for fixing the situation so that they can feel stable. And that just puts an undue stress on kids that is not not proper. All right, we're going to take a pause here as we come around the corner. So hold tight. Yeah, right. I didn't, this does not look like 43 South, even though I know we're going to I know, be it's so weird south. because you're just doing this right. great big circle. I know right. it screws me up every single time. Yeah. What do you say to folks that are maybe struggling with um, their identity in the midst of this? I was very scared to start talking openly about my own. But I have found that as I've started talking openly about my own challenges, other people have come forward. And I've been able to help other people, and those people have been able to help other people. And sooner, you know, very soon, you start developing a community of supports, and you find out that... um, You know, mental health issues affect lots of different people. They don't discriminate. The thing that I think we need to speak up about to help other people um, find some relief in their own pain. Um, And just to be able to experience more peace and more joy and to realize that life does not have to be a chronic state of um, pain. That, honestly, if we'll address some of these painful issues and especially the fear of addressing them once we get over that and we start taking action steps towards healing life can be way better than we ever imagined and when we come back we're going to be talking to deb about heather johnson and this took a lot of courage actually i remember a day when nobody talked about alcoholism and then a few people stepped up, admitted their problem. And Betty Ford may have done more for this than any single human being. I mean, a president's wife said the words, I have a drinking problem. And she told the country about it. And suddenly, rehab centers occurred. People could just admit this. And mental illness is one of those things. And we all have it in our family. We all know it. It's close to us. And people actually blame themselves for mental illness. And then the family around them feel ashamed. And the person who's suffering from it feels ashamed. And to be able to give words to this and have the power over it and the agency over it is just a beautiful thing. And when we come back, we'll talk to Deb Wolniak about mental illness, how to cope with it, 
how to deal with it. Marriages can survive it. Colin Powell was very courageous talking about his wife Alma and her chronic depression. And a beautiful book was written about it by Alma. I mean, stunning. And what they did, how they salvaged their marriage, just beautiful. When we come back, Deb Woniak, Marriage on the Mind. We'll talk about Heather Johnson. We'll talk about mental illness. More after this. This is Our American Stories. listening to Holly Williams from Southern Family, another Dave Cobb product, and we're going to be featuring Dave's music a lot. He's the producer of so much of the music we love here on this show, a real star in Nashville doing sort of unpop-like, real, what I call real country music, and real American music. And what an American story this is, and what a human story this is, Deb, and thanks for bringing this to our attention. I mean, I've had connection to this in my family, I think every family has some connection to mental illness of some kind. And uh, talk about how you came to know Heather, uh, Deb. Well, it was funny because I had seen her around, living in a smaller town, and she has this striking, beautiful blonde hair that's really curly. And so you, you can't help but notice her. But I was in a coffee shop of all places, and I don't normally overhear conversations, but something that she said struck me, and she and her husband were having this very constructive conversation about how to work with their children who were adopted as they go into adulthood and what their plan was. And I say, excuse me, I have to stop you a second. My name is Deb. I have to meet you. What you're talking about is so amazing that you're having this conversation. You're planning ahead and caring for your children. I've adopted Russian children as well. So we hit it off, and then the rest is history. I've found her to be um, just a complete professional, and I love what she does. She even has a blog site site called True Life with God. And if anyone loves her honesty in this interview, if you check out her blog site, she is brutally honest about where she's at, different struggles, and she'll challenge you. She will challenge you as a person to go stronger in your emotional well-being. Well, an emotional well-being starts with truth in the end. And that's a hard thing to confront in any of them. Look, all of us have to confront that, not only in our marriages. we got to look at the man or woman in the mirror in the end. And, and she said something so profound, and that was that she actually confessed not only what the problem was with her husband, but she ultimately admitted that she had the problem herself. Um, I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't ready for that, Deb. It was a real, I was like, wow, wow, what, what, what courage, what courage. Uh, yeah, well, and 60 million Americans suffer from some, some sort of mental illness. And in fact, one out of four adults 
or one in five children are suffering. So most of them not even realizing that there's really a challenge there. Some are very minor, some more severe, depending on what uh, the challenge is. But really, there's about 200 different classified forms of mental illness. So when we start stepping into this space, first of all, we have to be honest and we have to remove the stigma. So many people are paralyzed because they're so worried about what will other people think? What if my employer finds out there's something wrong? I'm, you know, they may be saying, I'm scared to even look at this because I don't want to open a can of worms and I just don't want to, I just don't want to have to deal with that. But there's a point where the symptoms may increase and you need to protect yourself and do the best for your relationships and get some professional help. That is going to be one of the biggest gifts you can give to yourself and your family. You know, you were talking about the kids and you had, uh, she had noted, Heather had noted that the kids will sometimes feel like it's their responsibility to fix the, the, the parent. Um, but I also think sometimes, and this has been my personal observation, the kids sometimes blame themselves for the parents' oh. mental illness as yeah. well. Like maybe I brought yeah. this on my parents. Maybe my mom was normal and maybe I drove her crazy. Just like sometimes yeah. kids blame themselves for their parents' divorce. Talk about the yeah. kids because I want to talk about that even before I talk about the adults. Right. I think one of the main things that, that we can do for our kids is not only educate ourselves, but be honest with them and educate them more on what types of situations you're experiencing, you know, as an age-appropriate manner, and then also what kind of things you're doing to help uh, grow in your emotional well-being or what care you're giving yourself. Um, unfortunately, we can pass along the stigma or the concerns that may not be dealt with in a healthy manner to our children. What we need to do is take a healthy stand, take care of those things, and be honest with them. Yes, kids will blame themselves for things that are not even in their control. It's their human nature. They want to protect their parents. That's awesome. But we also want to make sure that we continue to teach and train them and be honest with where things are at so that they know that, you know, my mom's going to be okay. My dad's going to be okay. They're, they're seeing what this is and we're going to work together. And they'll see that growth and come to that conclusion, know that you're going to be safe and you're going to be all right. So let's talk about the adults, Deb. And, and so you're married to someone who has a mental illness. You know they have a mental illness. They know they do. You're seeking treatment, but still the same. How do you deal with it? How do you get through? Especially, look, it's one thing to have the mental illness, but it's another thing to be the person who's married to the person who's mentally ill. Uh, how, do, how do they cope? How do they cope? Well, it's interesting because I think before a diagnosis is made, many marriages end up coping because they're just trying to make um, accommodations for, let's say, a change in behavior or maybe additional outbursts or things that are starting to show symptoms that something might not be right. Um, many times we'll kind of maybe excuse it as a bad day, but if it continues happening and you're continuing to compensate more and more for your spouse's behavior or maybe even your communication is breaking down like it's never broken down before, what I'm going to ask anyone to do that's experiencing that is to seek professional help right away. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. I need to emphasize that right now. It doesn't mean you're weak. Asking for help is one of the smartest things you can do because it takes a clinical psychologist or someone that is approved uh, for training in that area to help you out. In fact, it takes them a few sessions to understand kind of what's going on and then to make a proper diagnosis. And I want to throw out a phone number here. 
6642. This is Mental Health America's 800 number. They have been around for almost 100 years, and they have uh, representation in almost every state of the country. You can even go to their website at mentalhealthamerica.net and click on your state and find someone who might be able to refer you or help you through the process you might just be discovering. If you have a gut response, like I think something's not right or something's changed, please get a team of people that are going to come around you and support you. If you're of faith, talk to your pastor. But I want you to know that sometimes pastors have a counseling-level degree that's more of an entry-level piece. They may not be psychiatrists. And some of these things require medication, just like you would, let's say, a, a disease or a broken leg that you go to a doctor for. This is a mental health thing. You need a professional to help you out and support you through this process. And when you're when you're doing this in in the beginning, your spouse has this mental problem and the disorder. Do you go alone though for your own therapy, the person who's married to this person, or do you go with the spouse, or or do you do it? I mean, how, what's the you know, look, for someone listening who's married to a person yeah. who has a mil- mental illness? What are you saying to that person right now? Well, if they're just discovering it, yes, go together, talk to your spouse honestly about it. Sometimes your spouse, depending on where they're at, can receive what you're saying or even say, oh, I didn't realize that that was going on. Let's go talk about this together. If you can do it together, that's the best. If you're concerned about that other person's reaction might not be as positive as that together feeling, then yes, go talk to somebody privately, ask them, hey, these are kind of the symptoms I'm seeing. Is is this something that you would recommend additional professional help and bring some of those those friendships in that you feel very close to and say, come together as a group and say, guys, we need to do this together. Not necessarily a full-blown intervention, but just, again, to get your spouse or yourself comfortable enough to say we can reach out and get some help. From that point, your counselor or psychologist will say, listen, we're going to take this one alone in this area or we're going to come back together for a session here. Let them coach you through that because every situation is different. The levels may be different. It may be a combination of things. And guess what? If you're really struggling with something, that can manifest itself even in a physical response that could involve other physical illnesses. So this can get complicated. And as we age, yes, things are going to come up. But the biggest thing I want to say, do not be afraid. There are answers for these things, and people do want to help you. And you need to know that when you get help, you will become better and stronger together as you weather this storm. And I can tell you, I've talked to couples that have gone through these things, and they say, you know what, because we stuck it out and because we continue to work on it together, as we still are working with it, we're stronger than we were before. Now we can tell other couples, you guys, you need to get involved in this, so that way you're going to be the best couple that you can be for each other and for your children. And Deb, I love, and we're going to have to do an entire segment on this next Space, but I love the fact that you are the president of the Wisconsin Military Network. I just saw a movie the other night. Uh, I saw the not the premiere, but I saw it before it comes out. Steve McAvity, who did The Passion of the Christ, who did uh, We Were Soldiers, who did Braveheart, has done a movie about PTSD that is breathtaking. And as he said, it's the other side of American Sniper. Because if you remember, Chris Kyle got killed. He got over some of his emotional issues, but the guy he was trying to help didn't. 
And the guy that he was trying to help had PTSD and actually shot Chris Kyle. And I'm so glad that you're doing that. And we need to talk about spouses of, of PTSD victims. Uh, Deb, thanks so much for covering this ground. It's important. Um, it's not always uh, happy endings and happy stuff we talk about, but we talk about real stuff always. Deb, thanks as always for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Marriage on the Mind. Deb Wolniak, as always, doing a bang-up job and love the interview in the car. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and tonight we're going to talk about Teddy Roosevelt, because he was born on this day in 1858, and joining us to talk about Teddy is a man who's written about leaders of all kind, wrote about Teddy Roosevelt in a book called 21 Great Leaders, Learn Their Lessons, Improve Your Influence. Well, on this day in history, on October 27th, Teddy Roosevelt was born, the 26th president of the United States, the youngest one in history at the age of 42, and the only one to win both the Nobel Peace Prize and the Medal of Honor. Whatever you think of his politics, and they were confounding to partisans on both sides of the aisle, Roosevelt was one of the biggest characters to ever lead our nation. Teddy became a legend for his Rough Riders that won the Spanish-American War in Cuba, his foreign policy of speak softly and carry a big stick, his trust-busting, a Republican busting trusts, and the Square Deal, the creation of the Panama Canal, placing 230 million acres into public conser- conservation, and on a lighter note, the teddy bear, and being the first customer of Brooks Brothers. Not a bad legacy, Pat. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Lee. Yeah, so much to talk about. So many interesting facets of Theodore Roosevelt's life. And uh, how do you pack all that into an hour radio show, Lee? No, I don't know. And I'm just just reading that paragraph. I go, what other man in modern American life can we say that about, Pat? Oh, nobody, nobody close. Nobody close. Nobody had his energy, his enthusiasm, his passion for life. We haven't even gotten into, Lee, or you didn't have a time to discuss uh, his role as a father uh, and as a husband, uh, that brood of rambunctious boys that he raised, and uh, his writing. You know, he was a prolific author and even a more prolific reader. So uh, we've got plenty to talk about. Well, let's talk about that, Pat. Uh, you know, he was a voracious reader and writer. He wrote 36 books and more than 100,000 letters. Now, this is a common theme that keeps coming up in leadership segments we're doing together, Pat. It was a big part of John Wooden's life, as you know. Tell us about this facet of Roosevelt's life, the writer's life, the reader's life. Well, it's fascinating indeed. You know, he, uh, 
he prided himself, and he would finish two, three books a day, you know, even when he was in the White House. Uh, they tell the story when he would come down for breakfast, uh, he would have a whole stack of newspapers under his arm, and he would sit there eating and discarding the papers on the floor, you know, as he finished them. Uh, he was indeed a, a huge re- reader. Uh, President Harry Truman, well after that, Lee, said, not all readers will be leaders, but all leaders must be readers. Right. And so so Teddy Roosevelt really lays out for us a, a, a real challenge about the importance of reading, reading good books, reading from history, reading biographies, reading in, in areas where you have an interest, and uh, having books lined up ready to go. Uh, he had one book after another sitting right there waiting to be read, and he was uh, very serious and organized about his reading. And this is a recurrent theme we come across, isn't it, Pat? Not just about the writing and the reading, but in all of your studies of leadership, it's just a little segue here, how much does reading come up in those 80 case studies you've done? Oh, I would say it comes up uh, constantly, Lee. Uh, you know, just for an example, we know that John Wooden was a serious reader, a voracious reader. Uh, I've written a book uh, on Abraham Lincoln as a leader, and we all know about Lincoln, you know, reading and finding books when he was a youngster and reading by the candlelight and, you know, searching out books when they were hard to find. Uh, I think it's safe to say that all the great leaders in American history, you know, were serious about their reading. Uh, They made it a high, high priority. So that's a good challenge for all of us, Lee. Uh, I encourage people everywhere, no matter what field you're in, uh, to read an hour a day from, from, a, from a good book. If you'll do that, by the way, at the end of one week, you'll have finished that book. Yep. Keep that up for a year. We're talking 52 books. Ten years? Well, that's 520 books you'll have read. And uh, you can do that, folks. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt really sets the example for us. You know, in this, in this chapter of your book titled The Man in the Arena, which comes from a passage of a Roosevelt speech and which wonderfully captures the essence of his life, you tell an incredible story about Roosevelt's time in Milwaukee that reinforces this theme. Uh, can you share it with us, Pat? Lee, that was brought home to me a couple of summers ago. I was in Milwaukee in that hotel, and there's a, there's a sign or there's a plaque you know, up on the wall uh, describing exactly what happened in that location. Uh, but Teddy Roosevelt was getting ready to go over to the big auditorium to deliver a speech uh, when he was running for president again in the Bull Moose Party. And when he came out to get in the car, uh, a man who had been trailing him for weeks and months finally caught up with him and fired a shot right into his chest. Well, Roosevelt's speech was in his uh, vest pocket, you know, he had it right there, uh, along with his glasses case, and it, it dulled the, the blow of the bullet. And uh, they were ro- wanting to rush him to the hospital. Roosevelt says, take me to the auditorium. And the next thing you know, he's standing up there in front of this big crowd and tells them exactly what happened. And he said, you can't doubt a bull moose. And he went on with his speech before he went to the hospital. So Reagan wasn't the first president who used humor and sort of deflected the attention away from himself at a mortal time of, of, of peril for himself and his body. This is Lee Habib. We're talking about Teddy Roosevelt for the hour. We're joined by Pat Williams, the co-founder and senior vice president of the Orlando Magic, who's written about 
Ted, Teddy Roosevelt. When we come back, more from Pat and more about this great man. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear this and everything we've done. It's all posted. And we're joined by our regular guest on leadership, Pat Williams, the co-founder and senior VP of the Orlando Magic. He's written 80 books on leadership. He's also run 58 marathons marathons and has 19 children, 14 of which are adopted. And he finds time also, thankfully, to join us every week. Thanks, Pat, again for joining us. Nice to be with you, Lee. Thanks. You bet. You bet. You know, what's interesting about that, Roosevelt, he was was shot. He doesn't flinch. He also goes on to speak for nearly an hour and then went to the hospital. I want to go and talk to you a bit about uh, the Spanish-American War. Uh, He didn't need to be there, Pat. He didn't need to go. Tell us about that. Lee, he craved action, and he wanted to be in the middle of the action. And so when the Spanish-American War broke out, uh, there was nothing that was going to stop T.R. from getting involved. And uh, he was always disappointed that his father had not gone ahead and fought in the Civil War, but had bought his way out of it. And uh, he was determined to get in the middle of that war. So he raised, uh, he raised a troop of men, you know, who he had known for years, some of them from his time out west. And he put this group together and paid for their uh, uniforms and got them ready to go. And uh, down they went to Cuba. And uh, he was part of that invasion up the San Juan Hill and was in the middle of the action. There were real bullets being fired, and T.R. was right in the middle of it. Became quite a national hero. Oh, my goodness, the newspapers uh, made a big, big deal out of it, and it was a big deal. Here was this, this man who came from, uh, you know, good means, and he decided that he was going to be a soldier, and he was. Just another, uh, another notch on his resume. He was a man of many skills, including soldiering. Well, he led, it sounds to me like, you know, leading in action is a big part of leadership. I mean, John Wooden was a, well, he was a three-time All-American, so he led on the floor, I think, thus making it easier for him, Pat, to lead off the floor. Oh, there's no question about that. John Wooden is in the Hall of Fame for his playing days as well as his coaching days. Not many... Uh, people have been treated to that those that double award, uh, but that was the case with John Wooden. Uh, he was a man of action. So I think I think Roosevelt teaches us: don't sit on the sidelines. You know, life is meant to be played to the fullest extent, and uh, you know, ho- don't hold back. Uh, if you've got dreams in your life, go pursue them, and then give it everything you've got. 
and attack life with a vengeance, you know, with some real fire. I think that really is how you describe Teddy Roosevelt. You bet. You bet. You know, it's interesting, and, it, and there are many paradoxes of this great man. Here he loves action, but as president of the United States, he uses his bully pulpit to make football a less violent sport. Talk about that, Pat. Well, he was a sports fan, Lee, and that was a big deal uh, back at the turn of the century. Football had, had, had started. It was a major sport in the colleges. However, it had gotten out of control. I mean, we, we hear a lot today about concussions and all, but in the, back in those days, you know, with very little good equipment, I mean, got, people were dying on the football field at, at the college level. You know, there would be 10, 12, 15 players that would be killed every, every fall because of the roughness of the game. The rules were rather vague. The equipment wasn't all that good, and the players were being killed. And Roosevelt, who didn't want to see the sport disappear, uh, made the, uh, the colleges, made the conferences pay attention to him, and he threatened them that the game would be stopped unless they did something to make it a safer sport. And they did. And the game did become a safer sport, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt was a huge part of that. He did see, in the end, uh, football as a sort of a battlefield preparation for, for life and for actual military service in battle itself. Talk about that, Pat. Oh, I think that's true, Lee. I think he saw football as a, as a battle without guns, uh, but I think he also saw that it developed leaders, uh, that it, it developed physical and mental toughness in young men. And, uh, of course, that was all going to come to a, a head uh, a little bit later during the First World War. And, of course, later in the Second World War, when so many of the leaders, you know, had come out of West Point, they were former football players, and uh, they carried that over into their military duties. And so I think Roosevelt saw ahead uh, the importance of these young football players and what they could do for their country later on. It turned out to be prophetic. You know, he said in a 1903 presidential address to an audience about football, I believe in rough games and in rough manly sports. I do not feel any particular sympathy for the one person who gets battered about a good deal, so long as it is not fatal. Pretty good, uh, pretty good statement. <laughs> and, a lot of, and a lot of those injuries were fatal, and, and so uh, Roosevelt stepped in and forced the colleges, forced the football people to, to make their game a safer sport. And that, that has been the case ever since. You bet. There's a humorous quote in your book, Pat, from Vice President Thomas R. Marshall about how Teddy wasn't in the arena when he died. And the result may have been different if he was in the arena. What, what did Marshall say? Do you recall? Well, I do recall. He died in his sleep. And, uh, and Marshall made the statement that that's a good thing because if he had been alive, you know, uh, there would have been a fight. <laughs> so he said death had to take Roosevelt sleeping for if he'd been awake, there would have been a fight. Uh, that was the way Teddy Roosevelt went about his life. He lived every minute of it. Uh, to the hilt, and he died in his sleep, and Marshall was simply saying that if he'd been awake, uh, there would have been quite a tussle before death could take him. Well, you know, to understand the man and the fighter, I think, in the end, Pat, we have to understand his father. I wanted to play a few clips for you. Here's historian David McCulloch on Teddy Roosevelt's father, Theodore Roosevelt Sr. Now, the father was called Greatheart. In Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Greatheart is the Christian warrior, the protector. The father would not tolerate deceit, would not tolerate cowardice. Everybody had to measure up. He was God in his house. And like 
God, you walked a little humbly in his presence. Pat, how would Teddy, a naturally weak boy born with asthma, a boy some doubted would make it even to his fourth birthday, measure up to such a giant of a dad? Well, that's a great point. And, and wasn't it wonderful to hear David McCullough's beautiful voice? That was great. Uh, yeah, his, his dad set the tone in that house, and he forced Teddy to, uh, to assert himself physically, you know, strength building, uh, aerobically to get stronger. Uh, he absolutely forced him to to live the disciplined life, and uh, and Teddy did do that. He followed his dad, of course, was a powerful influence, and uh, Teddy stepped up and you know really began to build up his strength and build up his body. And we all know, as as time went on, you know he was just a very he was short but very strong, very muscular. Uh, he went out west later on in his early you know in his twenties and lived the life of a cowboy. And uh, he was a, a very strong, physical young guy. And, of course, he went on into the Spanish-American War and later made trips down to, you know, to Brazil and uh, lived a very, very aggressive life that required a strong, strong, stable body. And he had developed that all on his own. You know, here's more of David McCulloch on the young Teddy's asthma and what it would mean years down the road. It's as though you're being strangled to death. It is though you're being denied life suddenly and mysteriously, and it comes on you involuntarily. Everybody around you is galvanized by the horror of this experience that you are going through. You are, it's, it's as if they're attending a hanging and you are being hanged. You know, Pat, as I heard that, I was thinking two things. First, my goodness, if you have something like asthma, you've lived through really tough things. This might make you more risk, uh, risk tolerant. And then second, in the end, it makes you tougher. Uh, talk about both of those things, Pat. Well, Lee, let me just say this. We hear when people have asthma, I think my reaction is it's not that big a deal. Uh, you know, you deal with it and you, you can be okay. However, uh, David McCullough certainly brings that to life, doesn't he? As he <laughs> talks about the... Uh, you know, literally the fact that you're, you feel like you're strangling to death. So that's what young Teddy Roosevelt was dealing with, and he, uh, he finally developed his body and his strength so that he got past that. But it had to be a very, very difficult uh, time and as a young boy, you know, to deal with that. I can't even imagine. Yeah, what a test. You know, Pat, in your book, you feature a letter from Teddy to his friend, Edward S. Martin, and we're going to get into that when we come back on the other side of the break because you have something beautiful I think I'd like you to read, and if you could, uh, we'll do that on the other side. This is Lee Habib, and we're talking to Pat Williams, and we're talking about Teddy Roosevelt. This is Our American Stories, and you can catch this on ouramericannetwork.org. Again, this is Lee Habib, back with more from Pat Williams. Today is the day that Teddy Roosevelt was born.
This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, celebrating the day that Teddy Roosevelt was born. And we're celebrating with Pat Williams, co-founder and senior vice president of the Orlando Magic. He's written 80 books on leadership, including one in which he writes about Teddy Roosevelt. 21 great leaders learn their lessons, improve your influence. Pat, when we had been on the other side of the break, I promised that you would talk to us about a letter Teddy wrote to his friend Edward S. Martin telling what his father would do when he suffered from an asthma so great he wasn't sure he could survive the night. He couldn't even summon the strength to blow out a bedside candle. What did Teddy say to his buddy in this letter? Some of my earliest remembrances are of nights when he would walk up and down with me for an hour at a time in his arms when I was a wretched mite suffering acutely with asthma. That's beautiful. And, 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 and you know, it shows a sensitivity, this, this rough rider, this tough guy. Maybe this asthma also revealed and, and developed a sensitivity as well, Pat. There were many sides to him. You're right, he was very sensitive. And he was a, a very sensitive writer, for example. He was a scholar. He was a student. He studied history. He was also a guy who... Uh, was out on the on the plains out west, you know, as living with those cowboys, and he was a, you know, a hail fellow, well met Easterner. But he was out there and won over the trust of the Westerners, those cowboys. And so he had many facets to his life and to his personality. I think, frankly, Lee, that's why we're so intrigued with him to this day. That's why there's still books pouring out on Teddy Roosevelt and historians study him relentlessly. I, the most recent book, Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, writes about Teddy Roosevelt along with William Howard Taft. So I, I don't think we can get enough of this man. There's so many things, so many a- aspects to his life. You know, Pat, you write about Teddy going away for school for the first time to Harvard, and his dad penned him a letter offering him both praise and advice. What did that letter say? Here's what it said. He said, you have been blessed with a wonderful mind, but you have to build your body. You have to take charge of your body. In a way, in a larger way, he was saying, you have to take charge of your life. And, you know, important words for dads to tell their boys. And, you know, we're going to be doing segments later on in the week, Pat, about helicopter parents, kids going off to school, and not being able to handle the anxiety or the tension. And here was a, a father giving uh, pretty tough advice. Later in the letter, he also says, I, I saw the last of the train bearing you away. I realized what a luxury it was to have a boy in whom I could place perfect trust and confidence. Take care of your morals first, your health next, and finally your studies. So what a what a remarkable dual set of advices in one one letter. Talk about the order of those three things, Pat, because it was morals, health, and finally your studies. Yeah, a good a good counsel from a dad years ago, right? Uh, I think any dad today would uh, would uh, buy that in a heartbeat. In other words, take care of your character. Uh, yep. Make sure you're honest. Make sure you live a life of integrity. Uh, don't cut corners. Um, act the same in public as you would in private, or private as public. Uh, you know, be a be a young man of strong character. And uh, and secondly, take care of your health. Listen, how many kids go to college, Lee, and go off the deep end? They stop eating right. Uh, they start drinking. 
Uh, they get involved with things they shouldn't be involved with, and the next thing you know, uh, they start ruining their health or start forming habits that's going to ruin their health later on. And so Mr. Roosevelt was making very, very sure that uh, young Teddy was going to take care of himself uh, physically. And then thirdly, you know, make sure you, uh, you're a good student. Yep, and you know, thirdly don't, is... Don't, yeah. don't cut classes, you know, do your homework, stay on top of your studies, you know, don't get behind, uh, be serious about your studies. So, so therefore, Lee, I would say to, uh, to any dad uh, advising their children off to college, uh, be a young man or woman of character, take care of your health, and, and really stay focused on your schoolwork. Yeah, great advice then and eternally, probably. We already spoke about uh, Teddy Roosevelt's physical and emotional courage, Pat, to be in the arena of the Spanish-American War as the Secretary of Navy, but it would also take intellectual courage to assemble the ragtag group of Rough Riders who couldn't seem more different. We are now about to hear from the PBS American Experience documentary on Roosevelt, Pat. Mm-hmm. From the more than 20,000 who applied, he chose a thousand men who reflected his own widely varied connections. There were Ivy Leaguers and Cowboys, yachtsmen and a Scottish Laird, four New York City policemen, an Arizona Sheriff, the tennis champion of the United States, Choctaw, Cherokee and Creek Indians, and the world's greatest polo player, all brought together by the prospect of fighting under Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt hailed them as the children of the dragon's blood. I, you know, I almost think of Walt Whitman when I think of something like that. What other U.S. president could have assembled a tag team like that of men from every walk of life? And what does it say about his character, Pat? Well, what it says is he had contact with all of these people somehow or other from somewhere in his past. And uh, they all wanted to be with him. Uh, they all wanted that adventure. They all wanted to be soldiers. Uh, soldiers being led by Theodore Roosevelt. I think that's what it says. Yeah, what an honor. Built, built relationships with these men over over time. And in this moment of a crisis, you know, they all wanted to be part of his team. Yep, with a, it's probably just a mere, a mere letter or note. Uh, I wanted to also talk about uh, Booker T. Washington and race with you, Pat. When Roosevelt became president... He continued to upset and defy convention, inviting the African-American educator Booker T. Washington to dine with him and his family. He was the first president ever to entertain a black man in the White House. Here's George Washington University professor James Horton speaking about that occasion, Pat. Booker T. Washington was the most acceptable black man in the country from Theodore Roosevelt's point of view. Booker T. Washington uh, talked about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Well, this is precisely what Theodore Roosevelt uh, wanted not only black people to do, but all people to do. Roosevelt got a lot of blowback for this, didn't he, Pat? Oh, he was heavily criticized. I mean heavily criticized. The fact that a black man was going to be in the White House, you know, having dinner with the President of the United States. Well, Roosevelt really didn't care. Uh, he wanted to do what he thought was the right thing. Uh, he uh, he took the criticism, and it was severe. But uh, I think to this day it had a big impact, uh, not immediately, but it certainly had a big impact, you know, on our nation and the whole area of civil rights. Roosevelt was a leader in that regard. 
Remarkable. And in Richmond Times, it said, it means Roosevelt approved of black men courting white women. A Memphis senator said, most damnable outrage that he has ever been perpetuated by any citizen of the United States. And, you know, it's interesting that this is McCulloch on, on, and I wanted to play this clip because this is, this gets down to his courage in the end, Pat. Let's hear from David McCulloch on Roosevelt's courage. He liked to say there were all kinds of things of which I was afraid. Mean horses, gunfighters, and grizzly bears. But by acting as if I were not afraid, wasn't afraid at all, I found that I wasn't afraid. Pat, we're going to close out with this with you. I think this may be the most important quote of them all. Talk about this. Well, the quote was Roosevelt's letter. He said, I'm not sure what to do, but I am sure that the only thing to do is to treat every black and white man on his merits as a man. The South is crazy because I had Booker T. Washington to dine. I shall have him dine as often as I please. Well, there you go. And this is uh, Pat Williams, as always, bringing to life great leaders, often from sports, sometimes from civics and history. This is Lee Habib. Pat Williams, thanks so much for joining us, as always. My pleasure, Lee. Nice to talk to you. You bet. When we come back, folks, we're going to get down to Roosevelt's conservation legacy. And this may be his biggest of all. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and you can hear all of this on OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. This day in history, Teddy Roosevelt was born. And we will like to be talking often about history with Hillsdale College's top professors, their top people. No, no college in America digs into American history like them. We'll, consult, we'll be consulting with them. Professors will be coming on. And always we're, we're talking about and thinking about history and thinking about our one of our great sponsors here, Hillsdale College. For this last segment in our hour-long tribute to Teddy Roosevelt's life, we're going to zero in on his enormous environmental efforts. Earlier today, our field correspondent Alex Cortez interviewed environmental expert Terry Anderson, a senior fellow and the former president of the Property and Environmental Research Center, or PERC for short. We now take you to their conversation. Terry, what's President Roosevelt's legacy on conservation? I think TR gets credit for bringing conservation to the public's attention, for sure. We have to look back at the time. I mean, he, he knew John Muir. Uh, he was, he was do, taking these actions when people like Muir and other uh, of the, the leading conservationists at the time, who, who really were conservationists in the sense that they realized that you had to manage uh, many of these lands. Uh, and this is a time when when the the environmental consciousness of the American public uh, was growing, and uh, he certainly um, uh, fertilized that growth. Roosevelt is famous for putting one-third of U.S. land into federal control for conservation. What are your thoughts of the results of this action? 
public conservation is equated with with governmental control, but the data simply don't bear that out. The best habitat in the United States for wildlife, the best managed lands for timber, uh, and the list goes on, are private lands. If you compare private lands and even state lands, I might add, with the federal lands, the federal lands pale in comparison. They have uh, disease problems with timber. Much of the wildfire we hear about every summer is not due so much to global warming as it is to poor management. Uh, the land is not managed well for wildlife habitat, including uh, endangered species. Here in my backyard, grizzly bears and Canada lynx are uh, on the endangered species list, and and uh, the timber around uh, the area where I live in Montana is so thick that grizzly bears couldn't find anything to eat. So it it he just left a, a management process, a bureaucratic process that has not adapted to the changes that need to be made in meeting the human demands as well as the ecological conditions. And furthermore, all those lands lose money over and over for the U.S. taxpayer. I think therein is is a tremendous problem. And the private component of, of land management is is far superior and has demonstrated results over and over that we can get better conservation. We can get private conservation in the public interest. Do you have a specific example in mind where you've seen better private stewardship of land than public? The Flathead Indian Reservation in northwest Montana is, is for all intents and purposes, private land. Now, it's owned by the tribe, and it's managed by the tribe. Sitting next door to the reservation is the Lolo National Forest. We did a study at, at PERC, the Property and Environment Research Center, where I uh, have worked for 20 years, uh, comparing the, the tribe's management with the federal government's management. The tribe makes money all the time, whereas the federal government just breaks even, and that's one of the best forests around. The tribe makes $2 for every dollar it spends. The federal government essentially breaks even dollar for dollar. More importantly, the tribe has better wildlife habitat. It has a better distribution, species distribution of trees, a better age distribution of trees, fewer wildfires, better water quality, and I could go on and on. So if we can devolve management at least of these lands to more local levels, we could do far better and, and, and truly make Teddy Roosevelt a conservation hero. How about Yellowstone or Yosemite as great legacies of Roosevelt's? If you ask the average American, how did Yellowstone get created or Yosemite get created, they will answer that Teddy Roosevelt did it. Both of those parks were created, uh, I have to think about when he was born, uh, probably about when he was born. Uh, so he didn't do it. Uh, both of those parks were essentially created by the railroads. They were created by the railroads because the railroads saw the the, the beauty in, in nature back to what Teddy Roosevelt did. He raised our consciousness. And the railroads recognized this was a place they could bring tourists to. And But they couldn't get private ownership of Yellowstone or Yosemite, and so they lobbied for and got Congress to establish those parks in the 1870s. There seems to be a shift 
and where bold leadership is coming on the environment. From the government in Teddy's era to private individuals, or what your organization calls enviropreneurs taking the lead today, what are you seeing? What is happening is I think more and more people are recognizing that that people like Turner and and, uh, Kennedy and Bacon, who own large tracts of private land, are providing uh, ideal habitat. It's the best land. It's the land that was homesteaded early on because it had good grass, it had good cover, it had good water. And I think what what some people recognize is that these private managers are are great stewards of the land. How about the argument that the public should have access to these private lands, which they are able to have access for for the lands that Roosevelt conserved? Of course, they don't open it to the public. They don't have, uh, in Turner's case, as I mentioned, there's a public road going through the ranch, so you can drive on that, but you can't get off and take a hike on his land, or he'll tell you to take a hike. Uh, what 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 is obvious, though, is that by restricting access, by limiting the number of people, uh, these these landowners are are doing a service to the public because the resources that are are conserved that are stewarded. Let me speak to to Jim Kennedy's property. Uh, he has land here in Montana, where he has done a magnificent job of stream reclamation. He has created fish habitat that was destroyed by earlier uh, grazing because fish habitat wasn't valuable to grazers. They wanted their cattle to eat the grass and drink from the stream. He's reclaimed those streams and turned them into magnificent trout streams. The water that flows through Jim Kennedy's property, uh, the elk that graze on Ted Turner's ranch, are free to move. They're not fenced in. They're not trapped. Uh, And so cleaner water flows downstream from from the, the spring creeks, in Jim Kennedy's case, uh, into the Ruby River, on into the Jefferson River, and and on down. That's clean water that comes to the public. Uh, Jim doesn't capture all the value of that. Uh, when the elk on Turner's Ranch uh, migrate off into the national forests or onto other ranches, they can be hunted by people who have more access than on Turner's, uh, and and the list goes on. These are these are resources that are free to migrate, and uh, and and the results are that the public benefits from them uh, as much or perhaps even more than the private owner. And Terry, is it only the big titans of industry who are enviropreneurs? Are there smaller players too? We shouldn't neglect the small rancher who does much the same. Uh, I've just done a case study on a, a ranch in the Madison River Valley here in Montana. Anybody who fly fishes here's Madison River. They know right where it is. They fish that river. It's one of the best trout streams in the United States, perhaps the world. And there's a, a ranch there called the Granger Ranch that has has invested huge amounts of private money, gotten some public money, and partnered with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and other agencies to 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 rearrange its grazing techniques. It's still a working cattle ranch, making a profit on cattle. But the result is they have tremendous trout uh, streams. Again, limited access to them, but those trout migrate in and out to the Madison River all the time. Better water quality, better flows, uh, bird habitat, and the list goes on. So even the private small rancher is uh, doing a great service for the public in, 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 in a conservation way. 
No, great work on that, Alex. A takeaway from you uh, on that, that really good report. It just throws off a lot of the conventions that people think about the environment and that free markets have a role to play and often can do better than the government. And, you know, and, and we're going to close out here with, again, this idea, uh, this ideas man, Teddy Roosevelt, filled with contradictions. Republicans loved some things about him. I'm sure Democrats love some things about him. A, a guy who loved the military, loved sports, was a city man, but yet a country man. But I think the other thing he's so well known for is, well, his ability to see a problem with trusts and try and bust them up. We're going to hear right now from Teddy Roosevelt himself. The men who represent that sinister alliance between crooked politics and crooked business, which has done more than anything else for the corruption of American life. Teddy Roosevelt, always in the end, a paradox, a man of courage, in the end, a man only America could produce. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You can hear and see all of this on OurAmericanNetwork.org. Much more to come. <laughs>